0: Dr. Ann Katz. Welcome to Sexually Speaking, a podcast about all things related to sexuality with zero sensationalism, but lots of information. For the last 20 years, I've worked with individuals and couples who are experiencing sexual difficulties, mostly those related to cancer treatment. I've written articles, I've written books, I've traveled all over educating healthcare providers, and it's been really, really great. This week on Sexually Speaking with Dr. Ann Katz. My guest is Linda Weiner, a certified sex therapist from St. Louis, Missouri. Linda trained and worked with the great William Masters and Virginia Johnson. What an amazing experience that must have been. For those who don't know, Masters and Johnson invented sex, not really, but uh, they really were the first to explain and explore uh, the human sexual response. Linda has perhaps a little bit of a different perspective on their understanding of sexual functioning and sexual dysfunction, and that's why I asked her to be on this podcast. A huge contribution that she and her colleague, Constance Avery Clark, have made to the field of sex therapy is their book on the use of sensate focus in sex therapy. I use sensate focus with many of my patients who have experienced cancer or other sexual difficulties. And it really, really works. So welcome, Linda. Thank you so much, Anne, for having me. I'm really happy to see your face and hear your voice today and and really keen to hear uh, what you have to say about this amazing Sensate Focus. So perhaps we can start with your understanding of the Masters and Johnson model. What does it tell us and what is it missing?
1: So indeed, one of the things that's so fascinating about their work is it is the first, it was the first scientific study of what actually happens in the human body during or before or after sexual contact. So it's kind of like William Harvey, was it William Harvey who stole corpses to figure out how the heart works in the different chambers? Anyway, uh, it's based on science, uh, the best science we had at the time. And uh, what it does is it uh, gives us a window into what actually happens in the body and the mind Uh, So, with people who are sexually functional, which is the first group of people they studied, in order to apply those learnings to the population of people who are having difficulties sexually. So I think one of the biggest contributions is their model is based on some degree of science rather than conjecture. Freud was brilliant, but uh, there was no validation of whatever he uh, happened to to think. Well, a lot of it was, you know, exceptionally uh, on target and some of it, you know, not so much. But uh, the human sexual response cycle, I think, is the biggest uh, contribution that Masters and Johnson made. And the response cycle, uh, where well, they basically hooked people up to gadgets and Uh, started to identify okay here's what happens in the body during uh the initial stages of arousal here's what happens as you're floating along you're aroused but you're moving toward orgasm but you know the door opens and your kid comes in and so the arousal dips down a little bit and then how you get things back in line so they were brilliant in being able to identify oh these are the predictable stages and uh Uh, they were also very good at identifying that uh, males in general and females in general, uh, I'm speaking here, those who are biologically uh, male and female, uh, or or hormonally so, uh, males are uh, aroused by visual stimulation and females tend to be aroused by tactile stimulation Men can be aroused at the drop of a bra. Women need 20 minutes of tactile touching to be where a man is at even him imagining the possibility. So I think that was another major contribution uh, in terms of understanding human sexual behavior with a little bit of diversity. And did you ask me uh, where I think they probably uh, went wrong? Okay. So the response cycle that they discovered or they uh, published was a linear response cycle, uh, which was really actually more representative of men than it is of women, because what we know of women is that women could be aroused uh, and orgasmic, and they can be uh, orgasmic a second time and some a third time, that there's a more circular Uh, pattern to their uh, sexual response. And that wasn't noted in Masters and Johnson's original work. So that was
0: one thing. I just wanted to to remind listeners that the I think it was Showtime in the U.S. and I can't remember what it was in Canada, but there was a a semi-fictional account of Masters and Johnson called Masters of Sex and I love that title. Um, You know, of course, which I watched. There's actually a book, a of the series. Um, And, you know, I I was thinking the other day about, you know, the the observational studies that they did that informed their model. We would never be able to do anything like that today.
1: Exactly. And actually, they were uh, running uh, the risk, he was anyway, of losing his medical license, because they weren't authorized, actually, to have unmarried people or married people in the laboratory having sexual interaction. Uh, And so they did a very interesting thing. They uh, called a conference together of the big wigs in St. Louis, the mayor's office, the head of the uh, Catholic church here, uh, the the rabbis, the uh, the religious leaders, uh, the police captain, And they got everybody to agree that there would be no uh, busts during the time they were doing their research until the research was published so that the research could carry on. So it was done in semi-secret with input from community leaders who could have uh, uh, been censured quite severely by our conservative Midwestern uh, culture here in St. Louis.
0: Wow. I would like to think that that wouldn't fly either today, you know. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: no absolutely i don't think you'd get it through the ethics review process
0: so you know one of the things that's missing for me in their model that that was subsequently i think corrected modified uh by one of their students dr helen singer kaplan is you know is the brain the brain is not there
1: yes well uh helen singer kaplan's contribution was to talk about uh The phenomena of uh, low desire or no desire, uh, which Masters and Johnson had theorized that uh, it was because of a sexual dysfunction that the lack of sexual interest was a secondary problem. But Helen Singer Kaplan identified that no, uh, it can be and is a primary problem. And actually, it's probably the greatest problem we have in Western culture uh, when it comes to people being uh, interested and willing to be sexual. Every study we have now indicates that even young people aren't having sex as frequently uh, as in years past. So uh, the other thing that you mentioned was you know, the, the impact of the brain um, and let's add spirituality. That was definitely missing from their uh, conception of uh, the elements uh, needed or necessary uh, for diversity in a diverse world. Uh, for sexual response to
0: occur. Yeah, and, you know, I think this probably comes from, you know, uh, William Masters, Dr. William Masters, was a gynecologist, so operating on a, on a, under a very biomedical model, which still persists today. I think there certainly have been, you know, changes in recognition that that we are bio biopsychosocial creatures for the most part. You know, one of the challenges that I have... Um, with, with many of the, of the women that I see is, you know, lack of desire, as you mentioned. And I think this, this misunderstanding that in order to be sexual, you have to have desire. And I would certainly agree that for, for both men and women, if there's a problem with sexual functioning, with sexual satisfaction, um, it is natural for desire to go down. I mean, why do you want to do something that, you know, isn't great uh, or causes pain? So perhaps they, they were not, you know, that far off, but just, you know, in a kind of slightly convoluted way.
1: Indeed, I think that's, uh, that is right. And I think uh, what you were alluding to also, or what it, it reminded me of, is the research that for a lot of females, desire doesn't proceed Uh, sexual interaction that indeed for some women, it follows the beginning of sexual interaction. It's like, I don't know if I'm hungry, but suddenly the food is smelling good and the, you know, the sound of the dinner plates and the uh, cutlery make a sound and the wafting smell. And suddenly you have an appetite that you don't necessarily have to start with having desire. And, but I do believe you have to be able to be permitted to have whatever size i use food metaphors quite a bit whatever size meal you're up for so if you decide you're going to mess around but you're not really in the mood you might get in the mood but maybe you're in the mood for an appetizer or a mid-sized meal or hell let's have the full course turkey dinner but uh being able to have options rather than oh if we start this thing we've got to you know move toward you know insertion for, for every time or it's uh it's a, a a bad experience, and I think that's uh, an important uh, learning for a lot of people about desire.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's move on to to really you know a major contribution that that you and Constance Avery Clark have made to, you know, the world of sex therapy. Um, what is sensate focus? You know, what's the point of it? How do you do it? Um, you know, there are probably going to be listeners who don't know what that is. Um, and you know, I learn something new every day, so I bet you there 's a nugget in there that that I need to learn. So Sensei Focus 101.
1: Okay, Sensei Focus 101. It was actually developed uh, uh, by Virginia Johnson uh, based on her experience of uh, as a child, when she couldn 't settle down, her mother would gently use her hand to trace gently around her face and her head. And it would calm Virginia. And uh, one of the things that Virginia and Bill identified as something that really gets in the way of sexual interest and functioning is anxiety or any negative emotional state. And so the idea being, if we use what helps us naturally to calm down, which is touch, uh, it will be something that will help uh, the individual or the couple manage the anxiety that gets in the way of sexual response. So it was on that basis that they developed Sensei Focus, which is a series of structured touching experiences that focus on touching radically differently, and we'll we'll talk about this, uh, focusing on temperature, texture, and pressure, uh, uh, turning off the thinking part of the brain, uh, the part of the brain we use to solve almost every other kind of dilemma because sex happens in the primal brain. So we have to learn to turn off the, uh, uh the thinking brain and get back to where sexual functioning happens. And so if you're relaxed and if there's no pressure, uh, a touch is a magical, uh, thing. I mean, it, it creates uh, connection, bonding, relaxation, a feeling of contentment, uh, a feeling of, uh, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, your partner who squeezes the toothpaste from the middle, it won't upset you so much if you've had some touching, which is kind of a bonding, calming, relaxing experience uh, where you feel loved, cared about, uh, similar to our experience uh, as we were growing up, as we were infants and had skin-to-skin contact with our caretaker. Uh, so. It is these structured exercises that couples start out, not, no breast and genital touching, no need to want to do it, no need to get aroused, uh, no need to get uh, uh, to like it. Uh, and here's a very special, important thing. Masters and Johnson initially told people in their instructions to touch for, uh, not to worry about uh, erection or arousal, not to worry about sexual response, but to touch to pleasure your partner and to pleasure yourself. They were trying to relieve uh, pressure and tension for performance. And initially they they suggested you could uh, 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 alleviate pressure by just simply al- eliminating the pressure to respond. But later they realized that there is a certain pressure in advising people to touch to produce pleasure in themselves or in another. I mean, think about it. Have you ever had a good time at a party when you're asking yourself, am I having a good time at the party? No, you're in it for your own experience. It's a kind of a a mindfulness practice using sensation. And how it uh, is given now is you touch for yourself without regard for your pleasure or your partner's pleasure initially, uh, just to get to the place where you're able to relax without any pressure and Uh, have a neutral experience. And ultimately the body uh, relaxes. And then you move on to maybe adding breasts and genitals. And then you move on once you're relaxed and present and mindfully doing that, you move on to something uh, more genital to genital, for example. It's a hierarchy where you reduce anxiety at every stage. And if a couple practices insertion, you move on to insertion or you uh, move on to whatever the couple's sexual practice is, teaching them that there are many good ways to have sexual connection and interaction. Now, in the second uh, phase, once they the sexual problem has abated, then uh, we encourage people in Sensei Focus too to start to show and tell one another about the ways in which they like they touch themselves, they like to be touched. Where you share information once the sexual problem has been diminished. So I'm not sure I did a terribly good job of describing it.
0: Let me kind of maybe paraphrase this and and tell me if I've got this right or or got this wrong, because from my reading, from your book, etc., perhaps the structure is not as free-flowing. So, you know, there are those four stages that have been described. And you know, I can tell you that that for women who've had treatment for, you know, any kind of cancer really and are experienced perhaps, you know, pain with sexual touch, body image issues, when I explain that, you know, in the first phase, this is what is this is what I'm suggesting you do, and there is no breast or genital touching i actually see women sigh and their shoulders go down because it's it's protective you know and then there's sort of that increasing and touch and perhaps more i don't want to say invasive because that i think that word has has meaning and and weight but there's there's greater exploration so is that correct
1: or Bring up a really good point, Anne, which is most of the time when sensate focus is given where there's just touching without breasts and genitals and there's a prohibition about going further than that, I don't care if you turn on like a rocket ship, don't go further than just the suggestion of touching without breasts and genitals. Uh, If there's arousal, it might come and go because men are visually stimulated. They might get a little aroused. It might go away uh if they're a younger man obviously for many older men there's a need for direct stimulation of the penis to get an erection or uh sustain. So but the point is uh so many in particular women but also men it's so nice they say afterwards to not have the pressure of something's gotta happen. I've got to like it, I've got to get aroused. If he does or she does, we've got to move ahead. Or they do, we've got to move ahead. Uh, and this is, reduces all the pressure and allows them to connect without the fear that they're going to get into a disagreement because someone wants to go further and someone doesn't, which has generally been the pattern that brings them to a sex therapist.
0: So what I'm hearing from you is they start off with the touching and in that same session, if things proceed, that's okay?
1: Uh, No, uh, they start off with the touching without breasts and genitals and they stick to that. Come back in, we process that. We're looking for them to have some degree of uh, ability to turn off their brain tune into their own somatic body experience. And when their mind goes to distracting thoughts, as it will, am I doing this right? Does my partner like it? Do they really expect something? You know, is this crazy lady with curly hair know what she's doing? You know, uh, those distracting thoughts will be there. But the point is you moderate that by turning back your attention to whatever sensation is going on in your body, temperature, temperature, where on your body is it warmer or cooler or on their body? Uh, texture of hair and skin uh, uh, and pressure. What's the feeling of pressure and how does it differ? So really the only thing we have to focus on is uh, the sensations, which become an alternate focus. If you're worried and you can't turn off your mind, you can turn your mind to something neutral, which is my sensations. I'd like to give an example uh, from, of natural function related to this phenomenon. So if you're trying to get to sleep and you have a big talk or something the next day and you can't fall asleep and you're worried, and the more you try to fall asleep and the more you're worried, the more you can't fall asleep. And so what do they tell you? They tell you to count sheep. Initially, I thought, well, that's to bore you to sleep. But no. And while you're counting sheep, you can't be worried about tomorrow. So if you're not worried about tomorrow, that clears a space for the natural function of falling asleep to happen. In the same way, if you're worried about your performance and you're distracted and you can't turn your mind off, you can turn it to, is, this, is, the, is it warm or cold? Is it soft or hard? Uh, what does this pressure feel like compared to the other? Which is certainly not gangbusters, but it keeps you from the worry that interferes with function. So that opens that doorway as in the sleep illustration for sexual interest, arousal, and function to happen.
0: So, yeah, I think we're absolutely on the same page, mostly because I've read your book. So what do practitioners get wrong when teaching this process to clients, patients?
1: So good question. What the therapist often gets wrong is they forget to tell the patient or client what the reason is, you know, why does this stuff work? Okay. And so without giving a little background and the rationale for it and just giving the instructions, clients are like, I don't know, how's this supposed to get me where, where, you know, what's this based on? How's it going to help me at all? So I think on the, on the practitioner's part, the importance, I want to emphasize the importance of explaining why this works and they don't have to buy it. It's like, try it, see if it works. You know, uh, it's your own experience. I think that's an important thing is explaining. The second thing is uh, we have such difficult time uh, getting people to, to uh, update their sense of what the instructions should look like, because they're still often using the same instructions from 1970, which involve touching to pleasure yourself and your partner. Well, if I can't, get aroused or interested or I'm worried about my erection uh, I, and I'm, now I'm worried about pleasuring my partner. Okay. And we come from a culture that says, oh, it's selfish for you to touch for yourself. You're supposed to touch to turn your partner on and make him, her or them orgasmic. That's selfish. And I say, you know what? Sex is self-centered. That is centered within the self, but that is not selfish. And then I say, as an example, uh, when you're orgasmic, who or what are you thinking of? And they generally chuckle. And then they say, well, I'm not really thinking of anyone or anything. I'm just lost in my experience, my bodily, my somatic experience. And so, yes, that is the way you get to sexual response is to be focused on the self what? trusting that the partner will let you know if anything is psychologically or physically uncomfortable so that's the first stage and uh, such an important uh, uh, concept and people will resist that your clients will resist that because that's selfish and and you know everything we've ever read is about love skills and how to turn your partner on and which gadget is gonna you know drive her wild in six seconds that sort of thing it's very performance oriented. And it's very. I'm being a good lover if I can do something to influence you to be uh, uh, aroused and orgasmic.
0: Yeah, that's so true. You know, I often hear from, you know, patients just sort of in general conversation, bring her to orgasm, you know, and I tell people, you know, you are responsible for your own orgasm. Yes. Right? It's not your partner's duty, responsibility, task. Um, and And yes, I think that focus on the other. And I've heard this from, from patients who've seen some, you know, another therapist before. And, and I'll mention sense Focus. And they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, my other therapist told me and it didn't work. And then I ask the question, tell me what you were told. And, and that key piece about the focus on the self. But it's not easy. Yeah, that's so true. You know, I often hear from, you know, patients just sort of in general conversation, bring her to orgasm. You know, and I tell people, you know, you are responsible for your own orgasm. Yes. Right? It's not your partner's duty, responsibility, task. Um, and and yes, I think that focus on the other. And I've heard this from, from patients who've seen some, you know, another therapist before, and, and I'll mention Eight Focus, and they'll say, oh, yeah, but you know, my other therapist told me, and it didn't work. And then I ask the question, tell me what you were told and and that key piece about the focus on the self. But it's not easy. It's not easy. But what I tell them, uh,
1: ultimately, is that when you're touching for yourself, and your partner is reacting in a certain way that shows you they are responding, you're going to keep likely you're going to keep touching them in that way, because you are getting something from it, you're getting the feedback. So when you touch for yourself and your partner turns on, you're going to keep doing that because it's positive feedback to you. And when you turn on, it's a positive feedback loop for them. So you don't have to start with trying to turn them on. You start with self-focus. And when nature takes over, you're both gifting one another something wonderful.
0: Couldn't have said it better myself. So tell me, what have been your greatest challenges in using Sense8 Focus in practice?
1: So uh, the greatest focus, of course, every therapist says this, the greatest focus, well, first of all, the one about it's selfish to touch for yourself. Uh, The other thing is just having uh, an individual or couple follow through with doing the touching because they are uh, very worried about it. Even though you say there's no pressure, they put pressure on themselves or they expect that their partner will uh, expect something. Uh, So And they're very adept at, uh, avoiding. I mean, that's one of the reasons they come to a sex therapist and generally I've been avoiding, I have a sexual problem or I have lack of interest. So I'm avoiding. So they're excellent at avoiding. So, uh, I guess the number one problem in terms of uh, is client clients, either avoiding the touching or doing it very late in the, in the two week period between sessions. Oh my gosh, we're going to see Linda. We better get our touching in kind of thing. Yes. So, uh, that's that's a number that's expected so i asked them to schedule it on their calendar so if they're avoiding they have to own that they're avoiding and that's okay
0: i think also today with phones and you know some people are you know more attached to their phones i think than to their partner and cannot imagine you know putting the cat out putting the phone away you know not being focused on what am i missing out on you know god forbid you know somebody a kid texts me and so, tell me about a, a success story.
1: So one of the things that has been such a fabulous experience is sitting down with somebody that says, "You know, uh, I have I, you know I have a, a, a spinal break. Uh, I was diving and I, I'm pretty numb in the pelvic region, and I, I can't get an erection, and I really think it's a medical problem. But you know, my, my doctor said, try this and see." what happens. And what's so fascinating is how often uh, it isn't. And when there's a lack of anxiety and expectation, but you are presented with the kind of visual and, and uh, sensorial stimulation, suddenly their bodies are working. So I think some of the most delightful things are clients, maybe uh, post-cancer treatment, uh, men with, who've had prostate surgeries, and say, oh, you know, I can't, I know I can't get it back, it's unlikely, and to see their bodies responding, because sex is a very mind-body kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's the most satisfying, is medically uh, identified problems that are resolvable, or at least
0: moderated. As you were talking, I was thinking back to many, many, many years ago when I was a baby nurse, uh, and I and I did a rotation um, in at a spinal cord rehab hospital. And there was a young man there who had a complete um, spinal cord injury um, literally he was a He was a paraplegic but but a high paraplegic, so literally just sort of under his nipples from there down he was he you know he had no sensation and no movement and He had taught himself this had nothing to do with anybody there. He had taught himself to have an orgasm by stroking a smallish area, like literally probably a two-inch circle um, on the side, just under his armpit. And, you know, I always remind patients that human beings are endlessly adaptable. And we can get through things that when you're whole and healthy, you think that you will never be able to get through whatever it is. And yet we do. Yes,
1: it's a very powerful thing, the mind and the human spirit. All we all know stories about uh, people have lifted cars up to to uh, remove people who had been hit by a car or were laying under a car, lying under a car. You know, superpower strength. You know, it, it comes. It's a it's a miraculous thing. So I'm not surprised to hear your story of alternate uh, spots and ways to be orgasmic. And uh, I've had um, a number of women that were able to learn to be orgasmic with just thinking about sexual. Themes or listening to a piece of music that the mind can do amazing things.
0: Sure can. I think that's a, a great place uh, to end. So Linda, thank you so much. And thank you so much for your contribution to my work and the work of so many others. So that's it for Sexually Speaking this time. There'll be more from me with another guest in the coming weeks. If there's a topic you're particularly interested in hearing about, or if you want to contact me about private counseling, please email me at counseling at That's counseling with two L's.